Hi, welcome to episode 73 of Fear of a Black Planet. I've been... What have I been up to? I've kind of... Uh, <clears throat> one thing I've definitely done, made a concerted effort to do this week, is to pull back from, from socialising and things like that. Um... That's and it might seem like an insignificant thing, but it's something I really find hard is to say no, you know, and to sort of say I can't do this weekend, I can't do it. Um, I can get into bad habits where I just go along and not say no and not say no and not say no, and then I burn out and then start hating everybody because I feel that they're persecuting me when I don't realise that actually it's my inability to draw a boundary <laughs> that's to that causes this burnout, you know. Uh, you know, you'd really think that you'd get to age 37 and be able to, to deal with that. But there's a, I guess it comes from what I was talking about last week, fear. You know, not being able to say no is like a fear that you have to, you can only take what you get. You know, you don't have a choice. You can't, you don't have the dignity to, to uh, assert your needs in some way. Uh, so, but I find that it's been really helpful, anyway, regardless, uh, from a purely creative point of view. <clears throat> and I don't mean helpful in a productive way, in the sense of like, yeah, I've been getting lots done, man, <laughs> you know. Uh, I've not, you know, I'm still, I, I would definitely say that my life has improved over the last six months. But that doesn't mean that I'm st I still struggle to get to sleep at the right time. I've still taken sleeping pills. I still don't get up in early enough every day. Some days I do. Like the, the days I was actually at work this week, I actually managed to get up early and do some writing beforehand. Um, which is, you know, it's not even about whether you do good writing or bad writing. It just, again, touching base with that, that sort of root of your soul, is, I find it absolutely necessary. And I don't beat myself up if I don't get up enough early enough to do some guitar as well. But ideally, I'd do a little bit, like practice some rudiments. Um, but it doesn't always happen. Uh, so I've ma but I managed to do that. But generally speaking, I'm starting to come to terms with the idea that perhaps my, my natural routine, if I'm just left to my own devices is to go to bed about 2 o'clock and wake up about 10, which feels like I'm being really lazy, and it feels like a really terrible... I almost feel shameful admitting it. But actually, there's nothing wrong with it. I get quite a lot done these days, and I don't mean that. And I don't mean that in some, like, boasting, productive, internet, fucking bullshit marketing way. I just mean I'm getting a lot more done than I was at least 18 months ago, that's for sure. Um, in terms of just satisfying days is what I mean. I'm, I'm having more days where I feel like, okay, I've done... I've done enough today. I've, I've I've made some progress in whatever things I wanted to make some progress. I've touched bases with all the places I wanted to touch bases with. And you don't need to get up at like five in the morning to do that. Although having said that, I do notice that there's a certain power to your creativity at certain hours. And for me, those hours are quite early in the morning. I have to admit that. But it doesn't preclude healthy, fulfilling, creative moments. Um, yeah, and I'm kind of, and, I, and I'm just kind of accepting that. 
you know, and there's something satisfying about that as well. There's something satisfying about not being on the same fucking clock as everyone else. Like, I, again, coming back to Jordan Peterson, I really hadn't planned to talk about him again, and I know that some people might just find it really boring that this guy is always being talked about on every fucking vlog and, and, and podcast, but the guy, you know, as I said before, he is a major cultural voice. He's like Bertrand Russell or Marshall McLuhan. He's one of these guys that's crossed over from the world of ideas into the world of popular culture, and that deserves to be to be confronted, just as like Bertrand Russell did, or Marshall McLuhan, or... Uh, Germaine Greer, you know, it's the same, or Jean-Paul Sartre. So look, you know, like, it's easy to get cynical about anything in the culture when you hear about it more than three times in a row. But that's a really, that's actually quite a philistinic way of looking at things. That's another thing I'd like to say, by the way, that confusing the familiar with a cliche is there is... Like, people who get cynical because they've seen something that regular, um, they're Philistines, they're not dealing with the topic substantially. Anyway, that's another podcast. But uh, <clears throat> Jordan Peterson, one of the things I do, he always says, you know, try you do things that other people do. Get up when other people go, get up, go, go to bed when other people go, go to bed, eat when other people eat. And I get that, that, that from a certain point of view, that's healthy. Because when you're quite a lot of depressed people, especially neurotic arty types tend to be so off kilter with the rest of the world that it that it sort of becomes a problem and i've de- and i that's definitely easy for me to get into that where you you know basically you start getting up at three o'clock in the afternoon of the winter and the day's already done and everything just seems hopeless uh, so you know i get that however the opposite side to that, and I wish I could say it to him, is that you know you may it frustrates me that his 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 go to is to say something conformist, as if being conformist is automatically therapeutic. But I've found that I find going into an office to work, even the half week that I do, really really draining, really really painful, and it's not hard, and it, and and I'm lucky. Nobody bothers me, you know, like, I can just sit at a computer and, you know, I'm very lucky. There's not, it's not to do with anyone. It's not any, it's not a problem. It's not anyone's fault. It's just, it's just my personality feels like it's suffocating in certain environments. And, and I, and I say this because I've somewhat, I've really tried to conform in those ways. I've really tried to be that kind of person and it just doesn't work it just doesn't work it makes me more miserable than to wake up at three o'clock and feel hopeless it makes me more miserable it's worse and that's saying a lot because that's horrible and it well, the only reason that that waking up at three o'clock when everyone else is the day's done for everyone else feels like shit is because you're so stuck in that oh i haven't done what everyone else is doing whereas if you just accept it this only really applies to sort of certain arty types that have a similar personality to me, by the way. I'm not saying this is like a, a normative thing for other people. I'm just saying that this, that it's okay to accept the fact that you're, 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 you have a different system, a different clock than other people. And I think, 
I should give myself a break, man. You know, I, I get, I, I, I don't, I do, Sometimes I get up really early and I'm on it. But I mean, what's the value in being on it, man? Unless you're just so concerned about boasting about that, you know. Uh, I, I realized that the, the, the things I will take away from Jordan Peterson's advice on, on is, is having a schedule of some sorts. But even he recognizes for artists, it shouldn't be too full. You know, it's uh, so I, my idea is to just have have very core things that I do in the morning, like a, a sort of morning routine. But it's not like a morning routine. It's more like some rituals just to get me going. And some things that I basically I get things that if I go to bed and I haven't done, I will feel shit about it. And not from an external validation point of view, but I will actually internally feel like I've wasted the potential of the day. So I'll get those certain things done in the in the morning, quote-unquote, when I first wake up, basically. And then I'll maybe book in a couple of other tasks. Maybe I've, I've, I was trying to do too much at one point. And I am one of these people that flits around all the time. So it's difficult. But that that's kind of helped me. It's sort of... That's the ironic thing. Like, a, a, a very light touch with a schedule can actually help an artist because I've built into the schedule, the idea of the schedule. It's, it changes every day and I pretty much go by day by day. I don't, I, I'll, I, like this week I actually wrote a kind of week, a week's worth of schedule, but generally speaking, I'll do it the night before. So that in itself is not like, it's not like I have to stick to it. But, uh, yeah, the light touch can actually help you in terms of flitting around and your changeability and your kind of um, what's the uh, what's the word? Um, what's the word? Uh, capriciousness is that the word? Does that have too negative a connotation? Your change, your your sort of changeling kind of temperament as an artist. Um, so I've built it into that, like, I, it sort of helps me, it helps me to sort of manage that and feel not so overwhelmed by it. But I started to realise that maybe two core things after I've done my my essential things in the morning, and then in the afternoon, say this podcast is one of them, and then maybe one more, like, demanding thing, I mean, uh, and then you know, then, then something that's much more contemplative and passive, but still, but still, but still an investment, you know, so it's, you know, it, it, it's good to have a schedule, but it's good to be, to, for it to just be a kind of, I don't know what is this is the better word to describe it because here's the thing I went to boarding school and I and I remember it just and I've I've definitely talked about this before but just everything was fucking I have when I think of a timetable I have I have a vivid picture in my mind of what a school timetable looked like at boarding school and it was fucking awful I mean literally during the day you would get maybe 2 hours where you weren't doing something scheduled. And that that includes everything from piss breaks to, 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 to a tea break, 20 minutes in the morning, to 
to the time after lunch, which was about 25 minutes where you could fuck around and speak to girls, and to the time when you were changing to get ready and go and play rugby, to, to, to the time after dinner before you had to go and do your homework prep. Like, like, and to the to the to the half hour between finishing your prep and then going to bed, you know, like that. It's like broken up. None of it was free time, as it were. There were there were some days during the week where they did schedule in free time, but it, but the feeling of clinging to that free time really wore the value of it away. Um. So. I come. I, I. I've had. I. That ties in with what I was saying about conformism. Is like that never worked for me. It felt like suffocation in a very real, visceral, psychic way, and so I struggle with that. And I struggle with this idea that the best way, the most healthy, balanced way to do something is to do what everyone else does. That's not been my experience at all. And I say that not as someone who's not tried it. I say that as someone who has tried it more than once, many times over. And has always end up more, more suffering and pain and self hatred. So, ha, but ha, also having said that, I do recognise that having some kind of diary is useful and and certain kind of ritual touch points during the day. So what I'm doing with my schedule is not seeing it as a timetable that has to be stuck to like rigorously, just as sort of suggestions that. When I have those awful neurotic slumps during the day, which are inevitable, because you're in this kind of free-floating, changeling, wacko, creative mode. That, okay, okay. Here's here's. You know, I said I was going to go for a walk today. I said I was going to go to the tea today. I said I was going to go da 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 da. You know, like just <clears throat> they're just uh, anchors for the main show, which is the the, the sort of free association. Uh, improvisational subjectivity of a, of an artist's inner life, but it does help to anchor that. It really does. So I've been struggling with that. Um, I say struggle. I mean, I've been experimenting. Is what I mean. I've been experimenting with what works. Because there is a point where I try. If I try to cram in too much, it, it's counterproductive. Uh, but having having the having the satisfaction of ticking off entries into a diary every day is, is it does build momentum and that's the big that's the big thing i got from peterson's book was this idea of that you can create small incremental changes which create momentum which creates a boost to your nervous system and that's scientific and the opposite can be the case that if you allow things to degenerate so much your nervous system can kind of collapse. So as long as you keep things in a kind of forward movement, no matter how small and how incremental it can, it has to be sometimes, and that can, and that can be, if you're neurotic, that can, there are days where, it, you know, you might just be able to write a sentence, you know, and that that's valuable because I think what's valuable about it is that it, it, it includes the idea that not every day is the same. It includes the idea that not everybody's the same. So that there's a there's room for variation, there's room for free association and creative changeability within that kind of way of doing it. So I'm experimenting with that. I'm not saying I've got it down. But um 
but I'm de- I, I, it's going better than it was. And I, the, I'm trying to avoid perfectionism. I'm trying to avoid... Anytime I start to feel that, oh, I've got to get this done and I've got to nail that, that energy, I stop, I pull back. Because I, I know, however much that might drive me through today, rushing around and yet nailing it, yeah, doing so much, man. Any of that energy, no matter how it will, in the short term, it might put me through three days where I get things done, but I will burn out because it's coming from the wrong place. And it's and it comes at the expense of the creative contemplation in inside uh, that wants to that needs to be heard, and which is the most important thing, the daydreamer. Basically, when you're an artist, you are a daydreamer. And so it's, it's the, the, the challenge is how do you integrate being a daydreamer into the world where daydreaming is not valued and, and, it, and is treated with outright suspicion. So you have to kind of play a dance. You have to do, you sort of, uh, you sort of have to trick yourself and the world, you know, um, so I, when I think of anchors, I, I try to think of things that will automatically, even though I'm getting stuff done, they'll automatically stimulate daydreaming. Even when things like going to the gym, I'm always trying to think, how can I do it in a way that ignites my imagination in some way? And anybody that follows me on social media, which is not many, I'm sure, but anyone who has, and all my friends know, I'm always going on about Brando. But the but the part of that is he's a hero and and there's a certain subtlety and, and ambivalence of masculinity that I identify with and which I think is actually culturally important. But at the same time also that there's a the he has this integration of <coughs> his physicality as an actor and just as an icon, uh, embodies an idea, embody, there's something creative and um, testosterone charged at the same time. So the, 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 so I, so I kind of use that as an example of what I'm talking about. I'll use the, a kind of uh, trick of the mind to, because I know that if something excites my imagination, it automatically has momentum of its own. So that is the... And by the way, I think that that's what other people call pretentious. But actually, people who are pretentious just uh, are trying to make the... are trying to bring an element of play into everyday reality. And people who are repelled by that and call it pretentious are people who have have actively suppressed that aspect of themselves and who have and who are in some kind of neurotic cycle whereby they are internally emotionally abusing that part of themselves the inner child if you want to give it a name but uh that aspect of imaginative daydreaming play so the task is I want to be able to function in the world, but at the same time I want daydreaming and, and, and creative contemplation and imagination to be to be central in that. So 
it's actually it's a bit of, it's, it 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 takes a little bit of um, limbering to to be able to do that. Uh, I wanted to talk this week about Alex Jones and his being banned by Facebook, YouTube, Spotify, and Apple all at once within the space of 24 hours. That's all over the internet. Lots of people are talking about it. But I think it's worth talking about because it's important. Because it, it, it seems to me to be a cultural shift. It seems to me to be a historic moment in the history of the internet and the history of free speech. And as everyone keeps saying, but as everyone will keep being misrepresented over the, to defend Alex Jones's, Alex Jones's right to keep broadcasting on the major companies that have deplatformed him is not to defend what he said. And yes, I know about the Sandy Hook saying that it was a false flag and that the people who died were not really dead and that it was... There's all sorts of sh horrible real-world reper repercussions for his speech there. And so it's, it's actually a good problem case to flesh out the ideas of free speech and why someone would still defend someone's right to say something, even if it had real-world consequences, where the families were 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 the families suffered in in tangible ways much more than they already were at the loss of their children because of Alex Jones's stupidest stupid comments. I think, well, for the record on that, by the way, I think that he should face the courts, as he is doing, and apologise, as he has done, actually. I've looked into this. He, he has apologised for a lot of this, this, the more extreme things he said. And a lot of it does get taken out of context where he's just throwing ideas out there, you know. Are they fucking doing this? Are they fucking doing that? Is this what's happening? You know, is the kind of tone a lot of the time. Not all the time. He does just outright say some dumb shit. But... <clears throat> If he's if he's done something wrong, as Jimmy Dore said on Joe Rogan podcast, if he's done something wrong, he should he should uh, pay the consequences in courts, and there should be accountability, and there should be due process. And and the issue here is that there wasn't due process, and the reason why there wasn't due process is because these private companies are so large that they don't have to show due process; they don't have to answer to anyone. Jimmy Dore, I would recommend watching the clip actually. Um, just search for Joe Rogan, Alex Jones, and it's him and Jimmy Dore. By the way, I think is is quite an extreme lefty kind of Chomsky type. So he's not some right wing nut job defending free speech. He's a lefty, anti war, anti corporate, anti Trump, <clears throat> defending defending free speech and defending hateful ideas to be expressed, you know, and, and, and marking the distinction that to defend someone's right to express hate is not to defend the hate itself. But anyway, he, he points out that these companies are they're, they're too big and they're too much of a monopoly and they are actually, they're so scared of of being regulated and having their power broken up 
that they're 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 trying to preempt any they're trying to preempt congress so they're trying to uh, brown nose up to certain government officials so that that could be the whole thing that the it could be to do with the midterms in, in, in America, you know, the, the coming elections and the sort of strategies of the anti-Trump movement on the Democrat side. It's probably something to do with that. But even aside from the party politics of it, there's a logic. And, a, and, and, and anyone who can come and say, well, what are you talking about, elites, man? It sounds like a conspiracy. This is what we're talking about. It's not a conspiracy, but there is collusion among the largest media broadcasting corporations, the distributors, and a certain flank of the legislature, legislature in America. That's not a conspiracy theory. That's a conspiracy. <laughs> okay? There's no theory about it. It's bloody obvious to anyone with a fucking brain. And the and the, the main issue here and the and the giveaway the giveaway of it all the giveaway is that there's no accountability that they don't have to answer to anyone no one's no there's been no assessment of the process of how this was done this is a guy with millions of followers and a billion views it's a, he's a cultural icon for good or for worse he's a major cultural player. And they've just taken him down, all in one fell swoop, like that, bang, all at once. You're telling me they didn't talk about it. So the fact that they can do that on such a grand scale to someone who's so popular, who's such a major influence on the culture, whether in terms of just people who agree with him, but also people who hate him, he's a meme. He's so big. He's a he's he's a meme generating thing just by existing. He's like, try to think of a, a more positive example, but I mean, he's bigger than Bill Maher. Do you know what I mean? He's bigger than, than, than any of the, the late night hosts, Colbert. He's a bigger cultural influence than that. And so that these companies have got the power with no accountability to take a guy out like that in, in terms of the culture. And you say, well, they're private companies, of course. They in principle, yes, but the fact that they, they all did it at once shows that it's not a private company issue to me. That's the key issue about the private company argument. If it was just one company that did it, there would be no argument against that. But the fact that, they, that there was such a collusion of the biggest platforms, Facebook, YouTube, and Apple, Twitter didn't, but Spotify as well, but the fact that there was a there was a, a consensus on that, so, uh, without and there was no accountability. They didn't have to go through any due process. Is what I mean. They didn't have to. They don't have to answer to anyone. There's not even been an explanation. The only the only is a sort of vague assertion of hate speech. That suggests to me that there's that the. We're dealing more. We're dealing with far more than just a, a private company's private decision, and that you should be able to do whatever they want. I also say that, as I've said before, as I understand it, and I, I'll really have to check this out because I really am just talking from memory. So, don't 
don't take this as someone who thinks he's got absolute authority or is is is, is speaking from you know entire expertise here. But I remember reading this article by George Monbiot. I've definitely talked about this before many times, and I always talk about it with in terms of the busking. And actually got arrested for arguing this point once in Canary Wharf. But the uh, the Magna Carta, according to Mumbia, was in two parts. One of it was about the authority of the king and, and, and due process and justice. Another about it another part of it was the the freedom of the commons, that even if the land was owned by the king, people's livelihoods were so dependent upon it that he didn't that the king's power needed to be at least I don't know the specifics, but at least brought into the realm of accountability. He couldn't just you know throw pe throw people out of their livelihoods on a whim just because it was his land. Basically, is the is the sub is the is the upshot of it of it. And so, but that that principle of the freedom of the commons, no matter who owns it, still exists. So there's a there's a public highways law, certainly in England. I don't know what it's like in Scotland. It's probably a bit different. But there's a public highways law which says that even if a certain company owns this, they can't just throw pedestrians who have got to, or um, you know, yeah, pedestrians or anyone who 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 need who or bin men or what you know, the everyday they can't just throw people off uh, a street which everyone needs just because it's their land. That it's a public highway, so that there's a certain right to use this piece of land to get from A to B and there's a certain freedom from even the landlord and his whims at that moment. And a lot of busking campaigners will maintain that busking is part of public life and cannot be, at least it cannot be subject to just some guy saying you're trespassing. That's the point. You can't just say you're trespassing on my land. Actually, no, this is a city, you know, hundreds of thousands of people need to walk on this pavement every day. It's you know, and 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 to and to be able to just come in and say with your landowning whim that you don't want that anymore, you can't do that. There's a protection against the landlord, even though they actually own the land, they can't do that. I think that there's a there. There used to be that phrase, the intern, the intern, uh, the information superhighway. <laughs> it's like the the sort of cheesy marketing buzzword in the late nineties. Uh but it, but it's true. It's a, it's a highway that everyone uses, and so many people's lives are dependent upon it. That it should not be, you you should not be able to use the the the. We're a private company. It's our platform. We can do whatever we want. When you're that big, when you're that much of a monopoly, when, as Jimmy Dore was saying on Joe Rogan, like you can buy out WhatsApp for twenty billion. So any challenger to your dominion can be easily bought out. Because of your, because of the level of power you have, uh, we don't we don't allow that kind of monopoly in public life, into and we certainly don't allow anyone with that level of public ownership to just control everyday lives of everyday people. And I would say that the 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 big impact on everyday life about taking a guy like Alex Jones down is that he affects everybody's lives in one way or another. You know, so when when he says something daft about Sandy Hook, 
we now, it's much more difficult to establish the facts of what you actually said now. And it's much more difficult to talk about it. Like if I talk, if I was to play a clip of his stuff now on this podcast, it would, it, it would, by, it would be a good chance it would get taken down. That has happened in the last week. People just talking about it, objectively discussing it. So there's a, that element of, of public life and, or just a journalist searching for him or, uh, you know, it's a good in, it's a good case study in the in the in the dangers of censorship, even from a good intentions. The other point I that I think about this is that um, the most chilling aspect of this is it's a show of power. I take this censoring of a guy who's got millions of subscribers, who's who to all intents and purposes, should be protected by the level of his reach, the the level of his audience. Because up until now, that is what has insulated people, is that people say, and that is your asset, anyone who's trying to do anything like this podcast or anything like that on the internet, to use it as an entrepreneurial platform, knows that your audience is your biggest asset. And as long as you've got that audience, even the, the worst kind of censorship will have trouble taking it away from you. You saw that with Owen Benjamin, the, the conservative comedian, who said some admittedly like dodgy jokes, but everyone says dodgy jokes. And they really weren't that bad. And, he, and, and I watched a lot of his stuff. He's not, he's not in any way... Uh, he's actually very recently started doing more and more anti-white nationalist stuff and denouncing these people explicitly. Not that he should have to, but it's quite easy to establish that his 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 view of life is is as a libertarian. Uh, but he's he's sur survived being taken off Twitter and and even losing his um, his representation in Hollywood because of his audience, right? So I think that they know this, and I think that they're still frustrated that they, they, they don't have that power. So what they're trying to do is, is, is to show power in a very real way to, that they can, not only can they take away your platform when they wish, but they can also damage your audience. That's what this is. Now, I think they've overestimated their ability to do that because, by all accounts, Alex Jones has been boosted. But they're threatening to take to to talk about the servers and get and get his websites taken down, threatening to just take away everything. Everything, not just say you violated our terms of service, therefore you can't use this for six months. Blah blah blah. And another thing about that is like even if you argue that there's a terms of service violation, and I know that we yeah, you think you should be no. I'm not saying that, but the fact that there's no accountability, that there's no way to challenge it, there's no redressal. It's just one decision, bang, four fucking major platforms taken out within 24 hours. That's different from just saying, you know what, saying YouTube, like they did with Owen Benjamin, they took away his live streaming ability for, for, for a month here and there. You know, I'm not saying I agree with that either, by the way. I think it's fucking wrong. But even in the, even within that, you could still argue rationally there's more logic to the to the terms of service violation argument. But 
that doesn't wash in this situation because I, I, I take it the message to me in my interpretation is not only can we remove you when we want we can we are now going to war with you we are now going to try and assault your your asset as an entertainer as a as an entrepreneur and as a creative online artist it's a show of power to anyone doing what i'm doing here you're doing by listening it's an it's it's a show of power saying we're not going to tolerate what we don't like anymore and and you may think that you have an ability to use our platforms to build an audience, but we're going to take that away from you as well. We know how to assault that as well. That's what this is. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a much more devastating, clearer message than has ever been done before in terms of taking people like Milo off Twitter or something like that. Those were, those were much more narrow in scope in terms of what was being said is just saying we don't like what you've said we think it's hateful we think it's nasty we don't want that on our platform that's not what's going on here that's what what's going on here is an attack on public life on public audiences in general it is a, it's an attack on the idea of an audience it's an attack on you no matter if you've watched this guy or not or you think he's a fucking bozo or not it is an attack on your right to determine what you want to watch. It is a it is a more far-reaching attack than we have ever come across in the history of the internet. This is this would never have happened 20 years ago. It's basically saying the internet's no longer a wild west and we're in charge. And we know that you've been building up your audience using our platform and we resent it and we're going to fucking we're going to sh- demonstrate to you that you don't get away with that that we have the power and i think the clear the, the main point i'm trying to make here is it's an assault on the audience not just on the the creator of the content it's about who's it's an assault it's a direct assault on the audience it's a message to you as an audience member saying we have power over you too you don't exert power over us do you see what I'm saying? Because up until now you could say, well, they can censor us all they want, man, but we're the audience and we're the people and we can go and watch Alex Jones if we want. No, 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 is what they're saying. No, 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 no. We're in charge, motherfuckers. We run public life. We're in charge of you. We're in charge of your conscience. It's an assault on freedom of conscience. It's an assault on free thinking. It's an assault on your ability to make up your own mind. And that is that is really what censorship is always about. That's what hate speech laws are all about. It's got nothing to do with being moral. Nothing to do with civil rights. Nothing to do with protecting anyone from anything. It is a bunch of self-appointed guardians. Smug. Self-anointing. Self-congratulating. Sneering. Elitist hoity-toity types, telling the great unwashed how it's going to be from now on. There's a new sheriff in town, and not only are we going to censor the artist and the creator and the video maker, we're going to censor the people. We run you, motherfuckers, is what their message is. Well, I've got a message for those cunts too. I've got a message to whoever's listening from Apple, 
whoever's listening from YouTube, whoever's listening from Twitter, whoever is buying into the consensus and sitting there smugly going, oh, he's losing his temper again. I've got a message for all of you. The people always win. We will win. This is war. Sorry, I just had to take a break there for a piss. But uh, I'm back. But yeah, the, the, I feel that this is a show of power and a declaration of war. And marks itself out as different from, from previous instances of what I would call censorship or, or deplatforming, however you want to put it. That there's... Uh, <clears throat> there's a different quality to this and, it, and it's because the scope of, of the assault is larger and the people who are going to pay the consequences are the public in general. Public life has been assaulted by this and it's a message from these large corporations of how it's going to be from now on and that and that's why they haven't released anything or there's been no no statement as far as I'm concerned. As far as I know, sorry. Uh, let me just check Google News to see if there is any updates on this. I'm not just blethering about shit. I don't know what I'm talking about, but um, no, I don't think there's been any official statement by these people. And I mean, I guess the other thing to to point out is that how blatant it is. They're not. There's no apology. There's no. There's no press release. It's just, uh, you know, they've got all this bad press. I'm just looking at the tech news today. There's all this shit about large corporations invading people's privacy and the power that they have recording people and spying on people and all this shit. And they're just not even... They're just, they just come away with something like this in... in Right in front of everyone's eye, you know they're not—they're not even hiding it. They're just—it's just a an, uh, a brazen show of power. It's imperialistic behavior, actually, is what it is, in my view. Intellectual imperialism. Anyway, <clears throat> it's enough about Alex Jones. I also wanted to talk about Kanye because I don't know if anyone saw that uh, interview he did on the Jimmy Kimmel show in the states. But you can get the full, it seems unedited anyway, unedited interview on the Jimmy Kimmel YouTube page. And it, it's quite interesting. It made me, because the last interview he did was obviously that train wreck of a TMZ interview where he said that slavery was, what did he say? It was uh, a choice. And obviously he wasn't meaning that people choose to be slaves. What he meant was is that continuing to talk about it is a form of slavery and also that there's a psychological element of slavery. And I think that his point was actually quite subtle is that however much people's physical chains have been unshackled, that there's still an element of the psychological residue. Which is what people, the progressive argument is as well, by the way. So it's not actually that um, unusual thing to say, but he was just had a different take on it, and everyone got upset. But actually, I think that he's got a very progressive point for his own people, and I think he cares a lot about black people. But one of the things I find one of the things I really liked about it is that 
in the interview, he was very good at deflecting. He was very good at uh, taking back the thrust of the interview because obviously Jimmy Kimmel's part of this fucking collusion of late night hosts who only want to talk about how everyone else is racist apart from them. Uh, but he was very good at... Um, He's actually perfectly capable, that was one thing that came across in the interview, he's perfectly capable of managing what's coming out of his mouth. It's just that I think he lets the manic thing go when he when he feels it needs to go. I think that's what he did on the on the TMZ thing. It's like he could sit there and be careful with his words, but he I think sometimes he willfully says, Okay, I'm just gonna unleash the beast and whatever comes out comes out here. You know, I'm just gonna keep talking until you know. I think he, he does that. And that's a kind of artistic thing to do, I think. It's a kind of it's it's maybe not the most sensible choice live on TV when you're talking about very controversial issues. But I think that he actually has that ability to just it's a kind of rapper's thing. It's like I'll just get myself into that groove and because whatever comes out of that groove right now is what I want. And I think that that's that's quite a and and that's not just me sort of uh in some kind of sophistry to 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 explain away his behaviour. That comes from watching this second interview on Jimmy Kimmel because he's very in control and very composed and very sensible. But then there's moments where he just says something brazen and you can tell it's just a kind of uh, caution to the wind shrug about him when he, when he gets into that. It's like... It's not so much that he's focusing on what he's saying. It's just he 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 can turn on a certain psychology when it when it works, when 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 he knows it will be mischievous or or he knows that the provocation might be necessary. Um, so there are a couple of moments where he he just kind of goes, uh, like when the bit where Jimmy Kimmel asks him if he was happy with his wife Kim Kardashian being in the Oval Office alone with. <laughs> with Trump and he, he just sort of laughs a little bit and then he s- smiles and he says well he is a player that's a great response that's a f- smart witty response that's not the response of someone who's completely wrapped up in their own narcissistic mania that's a response of someone who was expecting the question in some level but is able to is able to respond to it authentically. You know, there was not just some kind of PR move. It was a witty response that basically acknowledged the thrust of the question, but didn't come off negatively. It wasn't a score against him about his support for Trump, is what I mean. And there's another bit as well where he's talking about Trump, and Jimmy Kimmel goes, what about the people at the border who are being taken from their families, and blah, 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 blah. How can you talk about sharing love, and blah, blah, blah. Uh... Well, actually, no, that was probably the one score that got against him. That was where he says, well, how can you justify that when you said, you know, George Bush doesn't care about black people? And then Kanye actually sort of has that moment, it was a moment of silence where he's considering what he wants to say, and then Jimmy Kimmel just cuts him off and says, oh, we'll come back, as if that pause was an admission of defeat. But no, the, the, the other one I wanted to talk about was when uh, he's talking about Galileo, you know, and he's basically making the point, if we can't just say the unsayable, society and civilization will get stultified. And uh, 
And then Jimmy Kimmel goes, oh, but 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 in that situation, and 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 he just cuts him. And he says, I'm not into specifics. I'm not making an intellectual point. But he's, that is far more intelligent than any intellectual thing you could say at that moment. He just says, I'm not into specifics here. I'm just talking. This is how this is going to be. This conversation is the way I want it to be, not the way you want it to be. Total, calm, composed, uh, control over the, the battleground. And that, and that, it just these instances, all I'm mentioning it for is that these instances prove to me that he's not an auntie. Um, and that all the things that people are writing him off as cannot be the case. And I think that is ultimately what he's trying to do. Sure, you can talk about me and you say all these things about me, but I'm going to prove by just being what I am that that's not the case. At the same time, he does have that ability to be a manic idiot. But I think, like on stage at Glastonbury or something like that, I think he just, and this wouldn't be unusual, certainly as an artist, you, you start to try and say, well, we need to get into this headspace for that. You're not thinking about what's going to come out of your mouth. You're not thinking about the specifics. You're not thinking about the particulars of your performance. You're just thinking, how can I get into this psychological space? Because that's what this needs at this moment. And I think that he does that just off stage sometimes. And he can control it to a certain degree. Uh, although you can never control it, because obviously any old shit can come out in that moment and does. But I think he, I think he's more in control than people give him credit for, is, my, is, is, is all I'm saying. And the other point I liked that what he was saying was um, he's talking about he felt just as a black man, as a, as a Hollywood celebrity, as someone who was in a certain culture and a certain uh, in cultural environment, it was expected of him to be of a certain opinion in the political, in during the elections. And he also said that he likes the fact that he, he there's a part of him that really enjoys annoying people the way his support for Trump annoyed people, supposedly, quote-unquote, in his own community. Although it's kind of ridiculous to talk in those terms in this day and age. But, <clears throat> and I think that what that is, is again, there's a certain creative aspect to it. Um, he has an inner... It suggests that there's something I am. I think this is why I like. I've come to like him because I empathise with that. There's just this inner contrarian, and it's not random. It's not just an egotistic. I'm going to think differently. I'm going to. I'm going to take the opposite view. No, that's not what it is. It is a an inner thing. It's like when people start talking about terms in terms of I have to think like this. I must think like this. If I don't think like this, blah blah blah. The minute someone starts to talk to me like that. They're no longer my friend. They're no longer. They're no longer interested in in me making up my own mind. There's an agenda, and I think that there's just this inner bullshit detector in an artist, every artist, and I think that that's what it is. With a, a big part of it is with Kanye and Trump. I think he's just. It's just the, and I feel that, and I think any true artist will feel it. The minute someone, the minute there's there's kind of something automatically decided for you, you feel there's a kind of inner awkwardness that comes. Because the, the point about it is not to just be contrarian, not to be different. I'm an artist and I'm different. That's not what I'm saying. What it is, is that you know the consequences of going down that route. You know 
what that means down the line. It means a sacrifice of your creative integrity. And by that, I don't mean some floozy-woozy concept. I mean a sacrifice of your ability to, to, to be who you are when it matters, to, to, to lay it down when it's going to matter. Uh, to speak truth, a sacrifice of your ability to access and give voice to truth. I also think he obviously likes Trump because there's that sort of swagger about the guy and I, I don't give a fuck attitude and achieving the impossible. But I think there's also a part of his his entrenchment and is, is this fact that the more people keep trying to lecture him about why he shouldn't be thinking because he's a black man, blah, 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 he, the more it's just going to confirm to him that there's a suspicious agenda afoot that's trying to use him. And I think he'd be right about that. And I think that every artist just has that inner bullshit detector, as Hemingway put it. And it's and it's uh, it's an in, in, it's an inner ideological thinking sensor. It it senses automatic thinking. Ideological thinking is automatic thinking. And the problem with ideological thinking is that you can be right. You know, you could you can be on the side of virtue. But if you're on the side of virtue for all the wrong reasons, i.e. not thinking for yourself, there's nothing really actually virtuous about it. And that's my whole point. Everything I've got into trouble with, with my mates and, and arguing the opposite point of view and arguing for Brexit and arguing about Trump, all of it comes down to this idea of it's not what you think, it's how you think. That it, I think it's, it's almost doubly dangerous when ideological ways of thinking are ushered in as the norm through virtues that no one feels comfortable with questioning, like free speech and, and racism and stuff like that. That whole issue is about, is about true morality versus ersatz morality, is that you can say all the right things, but you can still inside be a, a morally questionable human being. And therefore... There's, there's more than a little bit of an argument to say that you're, you're actually more dangerous, even though it might be harder to detect the insidiousness of, of your impact on the world. And that's where I come from. It's the, it, the, I feel that, yes, racism bad, yes, fascism bad, all of that, absolutely, but there's one thing worse than all of those things, and it's propaganda. Because propaganda eats at the very conscience and inner liberty that is necessary to guard against all those things that we supposedly hate in the first place, right? And the, the, there's a deeper healing and a deeper robustness against racism and hate and and, and social degeneracy of that kind in fighting automatic thinking, fighting ideological thinking, fighting propaganda and its methods and manipulation, and I include advertising and, 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 and corporate marketing and all of that, by the way. It's all the same thing to me because it all erodes a person's resilience, psychological resilience and and... And that's the only thing that can actually fight racism. Because you can preach to a racist till the, to the 
ends of time. But if that person does not have the robust psychology necessary to self-reflect and to and to understand the implications of their views, not just for other people, but for themselves, then you're not going to get anywhere. And I feel that all kinds of automatic thinking, however, however much they pretend to be for virtue, always end up wanting to push an agenda. There's always some... They're always trying, and very often they will try to use virtue to weaken the ability to resist the suggestive propaganda. And that's how you do it. You, you win the propagandic fight, not by coming straight out with your nasty, hateful views, but by, but by taking the moral high ground, by, by suggesting simple, virtuous oppositions and uh, antithes antitheses. Um, and then you then you come in with your own agenda. You know, you soften them up first. Make them trust you. Jimmy Dore said that about Alex Jones on the Joe Rogan podcast. He said that the way censorship happens is they will always censor someone who is... He was quoting Glenn Greenwald, another lefty, by saying this, saying that they, they, will, they will start off by censoring someone who's obviously that no one will want to defend, that everyone will either think is ridiculous or hateful, so they'll celebrate it. But in that moment, bang! Of, that's a good example, because in that moment, everyone gets to feel virtuous, but in that moment, your, your virtuousness makes you a slave. And that's what I'm talking about. And I think that people like Kanye, I think that they, 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 he wouldn't say all that explicitly in his head, maybe he would, but it's an intuitive thing for someone who's creative. Because at all times, you're looking for what's threatening that inner moment, your ability to think for yourself, your 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 ability, your connection to the truth, but and you know from experience all the enemies from that, and, and it can come from all sides. So you're always on guard, and there's an inner bullshit detector. And a lot of the crap around Trump is ideological; it's not coming from pure sources. Even the the most strident anti-Trump. So a good example with that guy is that Jim Acosta, the journalist. He's talking virtue signaling about the free press now. What a load of shit! What he is defending his own vested interests. It's total fat. It's a total fatuous hypocrisy. Another thing I like about Kanye is that he's just. There's no way that guy's going to be PC when he talks with Jimmy Kimmel about porn. He's like saying, so has becoming a father of daughters changed the way you look at women in any way? And he just goes, no, I still look at Pornhub. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Now, there's just a, again, that's another example of a completely composed, in the moment, witty response. Like, he's not going to be drawn into the bullshit because down the line, this kind of virtue signaling is ideological, and down the line, no matter how virtuous your ideological thinking appears to be, it's damaging to the, to the culture and damaging to the artist. But he, he is, he, but then he goes on to talk about that we should have, we should have the ability to, to express our minds. It is more healthy, it is more important to express even the nasty sides of our psyche. Because the minute we start saying, well, this is okay and this isn't okay, and we start creating shame around certain things, that shame will expand. It might be very easy to usher in 
a hate speech law based on, you know, people with tiki torches, they were saying hateful things. And yes, it is scary. Yes, it's horrible to see. Yes, it fucking is terrifying. But the way we fight it is not by bringing in laws. The way we fight it is by by fighting ideological thinking, by breaking down the power of propaganda in itself, the way, the methodology by which these ideas are spread. And the way you do that is by doubling down on liberty, by affirming people's creative, imaginative powers of conscience. That is what we are, we must double down on. That is the, 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 the thing that drives me. It's difficult to put into words. And, it, and some people will just dismiss it as like sophistry and trying to justify this. But it's not just some adolescent anti-authoritarianism. It's not. It is an, a positive, affirmative belief that the, the, the most powerful way to fight evil is to, it, it, that it's won the battleground of the mind. It's not won anywhere else. That you, can't, that you have to win hearts and minds. And the way you win hearts and minds is by empowering them and showing them that they have the power to think for themselves, that they have the, the very thing that, that will empower them and make them feel human is their liberty of conscience. That is the message. That is the message of the original left. That is the message of Thomas Paine and Robert Burns. Explicitly. I'm not drawing anything out here. That is the explicit message. That the way to emancipate people is in the mind. So if you're using virtue to basically make sure that everybody just agrees with you automatically, you are actually creating more slaves than you are liberating. And that is absolutely at the core of what I've been trying to do and, it, and what I'm always trying to do with this podcast and with, with my, my folk singing and my performances is to affirm that aspect of, 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 of human nature that makes us human, that makes us moral. And, and, and that's got nothing to do with virtue signaling and, and, and demonstrating your virtue to other people. That's easy to do. And actually, the more that we start using that as a value system, the more that genuinely nasty views will get spread. Because it can be ushered in, in disguised as virtue, you know? Um, so far better to, to win the battle in the hearts and minds of, of, of human individuals, you know. And that's why individuality matters, by the way. It's not some, like, libertarian, you know, Anne Randian selfishness thing. It's, it's about that the, the only real way to, to maintain moral equilibrium in a society is to affirm the individual conscience, because there is no morality without individual conscience. That is what morality is and anything that tries to say that it's morality from the top down is not actually morality no matter how virtuous it seems it's propaganda and ideology anyway i'm gonna leave it there thanks for listening um yep i've been busking a little bit this week Uh, i'm hoping to do a little bit more i'm having a real trouble with um the sound I'm getting out of my amp when I'm busking, it's, it's never the same, and I'm always fiddling around with it. And the minute I get my guitar sounding right, my voice sounds muffled, and the minute I get my voice sounding right, then the guitar sounds too prickly. And it's a difficult thing with these these amps that where it all goes through the one thing. I guess it's just what you pay off. But 
I get, you know, when I get my voice right, there's a certain amount of gain and a certain amount of reverb, but then the guitar sounds too loud and prickly, and I just, I'm struggling with that. Anyway, uh, I will speak to you next week. That was episode 30, uh, 73. Um, I get, I'm hoping to put this stuff on iTunes very soon. I've got a, oh, I've got a website now, jamesblackfolk.com. It's a central website where everything happens. My podcast, my writing, my music can all be found there. Everything I do is found in one place now. So visit it, share it if you want to. And uh, thank you very much for listening. I'll be back next week.